a neural net does not cut it. It's a profound, deep misunderstanding of the way culture works and what its role in society is. And the people who are proposing that AI should do our creativity for us don't create themselves and don't get it. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to not do that. Like Frank Gehry, we're trying to give writers tools that let them dream bigger and better. Tools that free them to create more characters, more storylines, more complex themes that reflect a world around us that's more complicated than it's ever been. And that's why it's needed. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Hey, Joe, welcome to The Foil. I'm really keen to hear about your work. So many people have been asking us about AI-enhanced narratives and storytelling since Deanne Weir's episode. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to be the co-founder of Amelia? Thanks, Christy and Adam. Fabulous to be here. So it's been a a long journey. My co-founder, Kate, and myself have both been interested in storytelling and its relationship to the world for our whole lives, right? We love stories. We love movies. And we've both worked as creatives in TV, film, theatre, contemporary dance, events, right? We've got a background that's in that sort of space. And so I was studying at the Australian Film School about seven years ago and had a research problem that I had to do in that course. And so the frame of that research problem was in the creative process, how do you give writers a chance to be free, open, innovative and explore exciting new things? And how do you give producers the chance to find a market that's somehow or other predictable size, right? So it doesn't really matter whether it's a big market or a small market in the abstract, but you just sort of want to know whether it's big or small before you work out what your budget is, right? So if it's a small budget, it's a small, small, small market, you want you, you tailor the budget accordingly. So it's a $1 million film instead of a $100 million film. And um, and that was important at the time. And I think it's even more important now because uh, feel, you know so few films are being made anymore other than these sort of um, you know big Marvel tentpole serialized movies which are very, very, very commercial. So how do you actually find space for creatives to actually get from the process and experience what they want? That was the starting point. And then we were very lucky, I think. And a couple of sort of breakthroughs arrived almost by chance when we were looking at that. And the focus moved from the development process to the writing process itself. And I was writing scripts at the time and started testing some of the ideas on that script writing process and found, hang on, this this sort of, this is easier. This is this is actually, I can be more targeted with my time. I can be more focused with, with my ideas. And that led to a process that was becoming able to develop script ideas, to design narratives in, in a really focused and efficient way. Crazily, that ended up in a, in LA on a research mission to kind of see, well, are there any other ideas out there that like this? And uh, then the, then we ended up in the world of Hollywood storytelling and fiction, where um, it turned out that we ended up testing this with none other than Amazon Studios working on one of the, the biggest assets in film history. And that was our first project. So the Amazon team were super nice. They were very, very kind and said that we over-delivered. You know, we, we delivered more than they thought we were going to. And that led them to some breakthroughs and the ability to kind of assemble a team of writers all around that asset. And with a lot more confidence about the material that they had, because we did some analytics on that material using our ideas. And then we came back from that. And, you know, I'd never really been an entrepreneur. I'd never sort of seen myself as, as wanting to do it for a startup. But on the back of an experience like that, it was sort of just bleedingly obvious that we, we had to form a business around this idea and, and, and go for it. And um, so that led us to an accelerator uh, in Wynyard. 
uh, called The Studio, which is focused on media tech. And that, we, you know, we spent a year there basically working out what the hell we were going to do and what the focus of the business is going to be. And then we were just very lucky. COVID came and we got some funding from the government around that, like a lot of other people built a demo that actually started doing some real things. Uh, got a gig at the Opera House, uh, showcasing that, that demo. And then on the back of that, we've just secured investment last year and we're now building our beta product. So that's the journey. Congratulations. It's exciting. Um, you say you're not an entrepreneur. So what would you say your expertise is in? Mm, well, that's, uh, I'm a bit of a slushy, right? So, I, you know, at school, I liked, you know, history, English and maths and physics. And at uni, I studied electrical engineering and arts and did theatre on the side. And then I became a management consultant who was writing screenplays in my spare time. So I think I've always been really pretty seamlessly blending technical and creative uh, my whole life. And what's new now is that those two things have come together. So now my title is CTO, narrative designer and narrative data scientist. Best title ever. Before we go into Amelia and understand exactly a little bit more about the business and the platform, the product that you're building. Can you just unpack for us a little bit more? What is what is the problem you're solving for writers? I mean, are you helping with that age-old issue of writer's block? And if so, why is that important? Yeah, so um, this is where, you know, you enter the sort of space of there's no such thing as a writer, a generic writer. They're all different. Everyone does it their own way. But there are through lines. And if you take a, a writer like, you know, Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, uh, has a credit a famous summary of what it's like to be a writer. He says, you know, I don't know what the fuss is about. It's really easy to write. You just stare at the typewriter until the blood comes out of your forehead. And, you know, it's it's beautifully put. And anyone who's ever written a dramatic work and the unique challenges of, you know, let's say when you're getting to kind of page 70 and 100 page script, you know, or 60, 70, it's dark times, right? You know, you, and no one who hasn't done that gets it. But you, you're facing, you're looking into the abyss, you're staring at yourself and what comes back is not pretty, right? And so for many people, that's the experience of writing and you have to, you know, muster your own fortitude and face that, face those demons and fight them, you know, on a, on a daily basis. There's also two kinds of writers or there's many kinds of writers, but there's writers who are plot driven and writers who are character driven writers who are who enjoy structure and focus and developing uh, around a theme and and pairing things back to, to, to a central point and there are other writers who, who who don't like that approach and want to be left to run free with their characters and discover as their characters discover them what that next plot point is and and we're very you know open to that uh, our, our approach is very much tailored towards the plot driven focused analytical writer in that we, we've got a framework and a, a set of tools that we're building that help those writers who want more control over their process, we give them more control over their process, right? So there's an old way of crafting a narrative, which many writers and creatives might be using at the moment. You mentioned being you know, kind of narrative driven, having an idea of the journey of the sequence of events and the ways in which the characters are going to interact. It sounds like there's a lot of detail involved with that. And that would be a real challenge for writers to keep in their minds. Is that part of what your um, technology is trying to assist and, and sort of where else does it help? Uh, it's a great question. So uh, I'd frame it as that there's a spectrum of, of scripts. You can be sort of more or less ambitious in the, in the project you want to tackle and it comes down to complexity. So the, the classic single character, beginning, middle and end, Hollywood thriller type format, the hero's journey, uh, is very well understood and it's on the simple end of, of story problems. I'd, when I say it's 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 well understood, you may, as an audience, have had the experience of going to Netflix or going to the cinema and watching one of these style of movies, which you all know and love, uh, and sort of experience 
experience that, you know, the first 20 minutes are amazing and then sort of 30, 35 minutes in you start, it's getting a bit boring or that, you know, you can even predict the ending. Like maybe, maybe 15 minutes in with one of these movies, you sort of know who the baddie is. Oh, guess what? It's the uncle and he's going to, going to betray the, the, the cousin and, you know, you sort of get it, right? And it's because there's so little complexity in the in the plot permutations in these stories that you, the audience, are so familiar with the ideas that you're ahead of the writer. Now, is that a problem? Well, it's a problem for me as a viewer. I want the writer to be ahead of me. I don't want them to stay ahead of me. I want them to be so far ahead of me. I've got no idea what's happening. So that's what I want. And so, so the ideas are worked through and we understand them. And I think that's a problem. Story innovation. Now, if you go to the extreme complex end, and let's take something like Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, famously, or, or Lord of the Rings, um, both of them took their writers a very, very long time to write. And both of them are complex narratives with complex universes. And the argument is that the, the more characters you have in play, the more plot point, plot, um, sorry, A, B, C, and D stories you have in play at any one time, and the more fantastical the universe, the more variables, elements, creative decisions the, audit, the author has to make at any one time. And so, it, and it's exponential. So that they, the human brain can't handle that many variables at once and it slows down is the effect of it. So the, the metaphor here is Frank Gehry, the, the famous architect, would always have been a great architect in whatever time in history he was born. But because he was born in the age of AutoCAD, he could create buildings of the complexity of the Guggenheim Bilbao, right? If that was a, a building that needed computer-aided design to allow the manufacturing and building process of that, of that building to be feasible. And we're making the same argument here that for stories are getting more complex, the world that informs those stories is getting more complex and therefore more tools are needed. Now, that's the first point. The second point is around interactivity. So the whole world's going digital as well. And what we see is uh, because traditional storytelling tools are analog, traditional storytelling processes are analog, and they are more nuanced and more sophisticated and more magical and more beautiful when they're done really, really well than any computer game currently is. The greatest films are, are, are a high point for me. Uh, but those writers, there's a risk that th that style of storytelling is sidelined in this new digital world because analog and digital don't mix. So we can't take advantage of that experience, insight, humanity, compassion, laughter, crying, the emotions that we want to have in the greatest stories. We will lose those in this digital world. And and and, and I uh, and our, my co-founder, Kate, don't want to see that happening. So we're trying to allow traditional approaches to seamlessly integrate into a digital world. And we're trying to build a translation engine to do that. So there are a couple of things that you've said there that really sort of resonated very strongly. Firstly, where you said it's often that a, a story, a film perhaps will, will write checks up front and then fail to cash those checks towards the end where you sort of, you do recognize that maybe the writing has become a little lazier and you're not being surprised and elated and uh, excited as, as the story progresses. That was really powerful. Are there any precedents for uh, using data-driven techniques for developing story? I think famously, there was a really popular television series that was developed by Netflix, House of Cards. There was a lot of data research that went into the development of the key kind of foundations of that series and um, how it was kind of tailor-made to, um, to really appeal to a broad audience based on data that they'd captured about their audience. Well, there's the interactive film that uh, Netflix did by uh, Charlie Booker, who did Black Mirror. Yeah. It was called Bandersnatch, which is very interesting. Charlie Booker's an extremely interesting artist. Netflix famously do use a lot of data to inform their story development. And I believe, look, they haven't shared their data model with me, nor have they with anyone else in the world. But they, I believe it's along the lines of saying these audience demographics enjoy these 
genres and these stars. And therefore, surprise, surprise, for example, people who like Norm MacDonald also like Drew Barrymore. And so we're going to give Drew, Norm MacDonald a, a chat show and his first guest will, guest will be Drew Barrymore. It's that sort of logic. And um, because you're trying to double down on, on what people, positive associations on. I don't think that's anything that's not in the same league of what we're doing. Um, I mean, it's interesting, I guess, and it's certainly done well for Netflix, but it's, it's more of a commissioning strip philosophy than it is a design philosophy because once you've decided who you're going to put in, in the show, you've still got all the difficulties of breaking down what the theme is, who are the characters and what they represent, what the values are underlying those characters, what are the plot events that illustrate that, and then how do that, how do those, does that plot theme character triangle intersect around a narrative spine that talks to what you want to be talking to with, with, with these stories. And you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm all in on making a point with story, right? I'm all in on, on we're trying to sh- show the world something different here, right? Um, this is, this is, we're not, we're, we have not spent seven years of our lives developing these ideas to create more generic Marvel movies, right? We are, we are, we are, you know, I love Ingmar Bergman. I love Andre Tarkovsky. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an art house European guy. So it's, it's about the central thing we're driving here is a tool that allows innovation and new ways of understanding the possibilities of form. Secondly, uh, a set of tools that allow writers who want more focus and control over their process to have that focus and control so that their research, when they're doing complex world building, they can target the research and what's actually going to be on the screen. And the third point is a collaboration tool that allows producers and writers to collaborate uh, and, and, and make decisions about changes with a with greater understanding of how those changes will impact the story. So tell us about Amelia. Where are you up to with the business and what are you aiming to do? So we, we've just secured funding as of last year and we've got some really wonderful investors. We're about to do a press release and can't wait to kind of tell the world who we've got on board. There, you know, we couldn't ask for a better group of people coming from three basic areas, media production, so film and TV producers, AI investors, and cultural technology entrepreneurs. So, you know, sort of YouTube and Spotify kind of platforms. That's, you know, it's the perfect mix for, for to help us to get onto our own two feet. And so on the back of that, we've, we've hired a development team. So we've got back-end engineer, a data architect, and a front-end engineer working with myself and Kate. And then we've also got, you know, some marketing and branding support. What we're now focused on is what we've been doing really for the last three or four months following the investment and preparing for this moment has been getting all of our demos. As you'd understand, when you when you build demos, you're just trying to kind of make a, the, the, the clearest point you can as quickly as possible. So we're now pulling all those demos together and re, we've refactored the entire code base to set it up for something that's more of a product with wider applicability. And that's now currently, as we speak, going into AWS. We're going to call that our alpha engine. On the back of that, we're building interfaces to integrate with an end-to-end tool to, to lead to a beta product in June. And we've, we've got a bunch of writers and producers that we're testing those interfaces with over the next few months. Can you tell me, Joe, within Amelia, what is your AI doing? So generally speaking, and look, I haven't gotten a degree in AI, so we're working on a set of dramatic ideas and putting them into code, and that's our focus. But generally, as I would understand it, that you know, Chomsky's the father of NLP, and his focuses have been on syntax, and his understanding, his statement in some of his books was that you know, semantics is needs to be organised. It's its own little cluster of problems and his focus on semantics because more could be done there. Our focus has been on semantics, not syntax. So fundamentally, it's the core of what we're doing has been it's a semantic model and it's a semantic model that, and that's why what comes out of our machine is not necessarily the world's most beautifully written English, but it's dramatically coherent, right? Because we're, 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 we're focusing on not a general semantic model, but a semantic model that works for drama, right? So it's a dramatic semantic model. That means that we understand 
any theme a writer will come up with, we understand any combination of goals and events that can be framed around the human experience and that we've got a way then of supporting a process for writers to then make the decisions about which particular version of that theme that they want for their work, right? At the center of it is a semantic model that informs a data model, which informs a syntax model and a workflow on the top of that that makes allows decisions to be made around parameters in that data model such that you can write the story, design the story that you want. Now, that sounds a bit like high school maths. It's not because we're building these beautiful interfaces on the front and those interfaces are the translation layer. And so the idea is that it's as free as a whiteboard, but with a powerful engine underneath to keep you safe, right? You can go anywhere you want to in the interfaces, but you know everything you're doing is pointing back to that story spine and you can come back at any time and see oh, where we're up to and, and what's next. So Joe, how does it work if I'm a writer? I'm using Amelia and I'm wanting to explore potential variables or pathways for piece of my story. And I want to make sure that it's connected to an overarching narrative. How do I work with it? What do I do? Well, you sign up for our beta program and you can download the tool in June and, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> I'd love have, to. have a play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So are you wanting a sort of a very high level summary of, of what the process is? Paint a picture for what it could be like for a writer. The start of our process is one to three line summaries of the story. So it's it starts with a, with a focus on articulating the main conflicts that shape not just the through line of Acts 1, 2, and 3, but also the main complication in that middle act, right? That's where a lot of stories come unstuck because that's when you switch off. You switch off at 40 minutes in because that middle complication hasn't been worked out clearly and, and excitingly. So it's it's getting those, those, those conflicts clear. And you can do that in a really small number of words. So for example, you know, Steven Spielberg says that, you know, Jurassic Park is not just about running from a Tyrannosaurus Rex. The better way to describe, for example, Jurassic Park 2 would be an American nuclear family attempts to reconnect with itself whilst escaping from Tyrannosaurus Rex. And you can see there you've got, that's the film. Sure, it's not the entire film, but it entirely describes the experience you're going to get if you go and see that movie in in one line, right? That's the that's the approach we're taking, trying to get that, that super summary level right up front. And then we work down at the detail. And the way we do that is we've got a couple of main interfaces. So it starts with the universe building. So universe as opposed to world building. World building is, you know, the post-production problem of, you know, what color are the elves' hair and what how, what are the swords of the dwarves look like, right? It's that kind of literal visual, you know, great craftsmanship, great artistry, great creativity. Universe design is where you're saying, well, have I got elves? Have I got dwarves? Have I got have I got humans? Have I got hobbits? Right? What what's in this world? Right? It's it's a it's the conceptual data model that, that under, underlines you know, the the world design. So we're we're starting with universe design so that you you know what your the colours in your in your palette are. Right? Once you have enough of that worked out to be able to go into your you know one line or two line summary, then you can do that. You don't need much. And then when you want to get more details, you go back to the universe design and then build more. So it's sort of this a constant circling into detail supported by workflow so that's the first main interface is the is the universe design the second one then is the is the narrative design right which is saying well okay these are the elements i've got these are the characters these are the groups these are the i've got swords or poison have i got you know mountains or cliffs what have i got to play with and then that's where you are sequencing the events and the goals that are shaping giving your story shape and form right essentially it's 
combination of plot and theme in that interface. It sounds very inspiring and a lot of fun to work with. So who's picking this up? I know that it's very much for script writers and producers. Who's going to be using Amelia? Well, as you say, our, our focus in the next 12 to 18 months is, is those, those users. And where it goes once we've proved it out with that user cohort is, is, a, is, a, is a big question. And there's sort of three pathways we're walk, working out. It's very hard to say which one of these is going gonna, is gonna to be the, where we go. But you know, assuming we can deliver what we're saying that we're going to deliver, first option would be like a Canva model where we become a sort of um, poster stamp pricing SaaS tool that allows both professional and non-professional writers to take advantage of the Amelia toolkit. The second one is that it's more of a B2B model where it's a smaller number of clients and they have those clients are major studios and it becomes, you know, Netflix is running their own servers where they are, which are they're giving to their producer and writer teams to allow them to support those those creative teams with their with whatever proprietary products they want to put behind it. Disney's obviously got their own their own on-prem uh, network. Uh, it may be that Amelia ends up as a sort of a, a super specialized toolkit in one or multiple uh, areas like this that allows these studios to kind of do different things with their story development. The third option is one that, you know, it's really come up in the last 12 months with the, the, the rise of the metaverse and companies like NVIDIA or Unreal, Unity recently bought, you know, Weta Digital. Um, Microsoft is getting heavily into the space, obviously Facebook with Meta. And there's, uh, yeah, I, I saw, you know, just the other day, Bob Iger made a point that he's thinking of telling his family to focus on building tools that monitor and control behavior in an online space, right? And so in other words, basically a semantic layer that allows a greater level of understanding about the social and cultural side of the online experience. So that's another way that we could we could we could go right. It's becoming a, almost like a a, a a standard, not the standard, but a standard in in one or multiple of these these um, environments. So they're all very different options. And I think in in June when our beta's out and we can start working more closely with our testing cohort, it'll become clearer where we go. With the development of AI to assist in writing and creative activities, creative endeavors, is there any aspect of that that concerns you? Perhaps as you know, we've already mentioned noticing where quality you know falls over in some of the media that we're consuming today is there any aspect of the use of ai the use of technology that concerns you you know in that regard do you see pitfalls or you know things that we need to try to be careful not to overuse or use the wrong way yes <laughs> do you want more uh there's so many ways to answer that question like if you look at it from psychoanalytic terms i'm someone who sees i look at the films that are being made and i see that as a really great sort of instant pulse check of where we're at culturally right are we are we are we good or bad are we happy or not and i see an awful lot of dystopic visions of the future in fact you know if you if you want to think of a non-dystopic vision of the future you've got to go back a while i think now does that mean anything does it mean our future is going to be bad i don't know i, I don't know but it's not, it's not a positive it's not, it's not a hugely promising sign and, and, I'd, and i'd go one step further and say that in the terminator 2 there's a thing called skynet which is a ai driven satellite network and there was in the matrix there was this thing called the matrix which was essentially not a satellite network but an actual a, a terrestrial network which governed human thought and dream and those neither of those were the goodies right like let's just remind ourselves right you know those i think it's pretty unambiguous in both of those movies who the baddie was right but we're building those technologies right so so for me it's it's really that paradoxically we've got a, a very futuristic forward-thinking liberal or libertarian set of uh, ideas at the heart of this AI revolution. It's a real positive confidence that through exploring computer-aided uh, decision-making 
making in all sorts of ways that there is a, a better outcome for the for the for the for humanity. I just want to see that point made clearly, cleanly, and regularly by all of those use cases, right? And if they can't make that point, then you know how do they justify the job losses that go along with it, right? So that's that's my personal view, not as not as a founder of Amelia. The other way of saying it is, if I'm going to bring the lasso in a little bit more tightly to culture and. I've thought more about culture than I've thought about anything else, anything else ever. That's what I think about. And and so the thing about culture that makes it different to, let's say, car manufacturing is that your cars don't dream for you. You don't you don't go into a Volvo and say, show me the future. I don't think you go to a Volvo and say, show me the future of driving even, right? You might go to a Tesla and say, show me the future of driving. But but it's it's a different thing. Like a pair of shoes are not a cultural artifact in the way that a story is. Because a story is as a feedback loop. And, and music is a feedback loop with us. And I'll make that, that point as clear as I can. Bob Dylan means a lot to many people because of his role as an intellectual dissident and a, and a member of the protest movement, right? Somebody who's consciously drawing a line between him and his experience and the culture he's a part of to make a series of evolving points. And those points change as he grows older. So Bob Dylan now is writing like Christmas songs. is different to Bob Dylan who wrote The Times They Are Changing. It's a different guy. Now, I'm sure that people could write a neural net changed on, trained on Bob Dylan's music that could not only copy Bob Dylan's execution, but could also copy his songwriting style and create new songs. I'm, I'm sure if it's not, if it hasn't happened yet, I'm sure it is in is in is in in the ballpark of being happening. But I don't care at all. I don't care at all because I care about Bob Dylan. He's a person, and I want. I, I care about what coffee Bob Dylan drinks. Right. I care about what pictures he's got on his walls and what what symphonies he's listening to. Because I, I, it's the guy I, I I'm interested in as a metaphor for myself. As a and there's many people like that that I care about. Right. A neural net does not cut it. And so that's it's a profound, deep misunderstanding of the way culture works and what its role in society is. And the people who are proposing that AI should do our creativity for us don't create themselves and don't get it, is my view, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to to not do that. We're trying, like Frank Gehry, we're trying to give writers tools that let them dream bigger and better, tools that free them to create more characters, more storylines, more complex themes that reflect a world around us that's more complicated than it's ever been. And that's why it's needed. There are generally two sides of the argument that I hear around AI in general as it displaces human effort. There are those who observe that it's labor-saving technology, typically. And then there are those who point out, yeah, but it's also labor-stealing technology. And there's a nice analog there for um, the creative industry. So on the one hand, there's a labor-saving aspect to it. It's going to make life easier, potentially, for creative people to to manage and to create universes and to craft narratives within those universes and and whatnot. But it's not labor-stealing. There's, there's still the work cut out for creatives, um, as there should be, to to be the, the core and the essence and to stay true true to the to the vision that they have and to have that vision to begin with not a single thing about amelia does anything unless a creative challenges it brings a massive difficult to resolve dream to amelia and beats it into shape the way they would in the writer's room that's the process you've got to you've got to turn up with a hell of a big problem that's interesting and exciting for not just you and the producer but for the audience as well and uh, and then and then you got a starting point right culturally we've spoken about this before joe concerns in the citizenship or in, in people's minds around the use of data and ai is really at an all-time high. I saw a, a stat a couple of days ago that says, you know, one in four people don't 
trust governments in big tech to use their data and don't trust that future of AI, uh, which which um, is a concern, really. What's your view on how this issue will play out in the zeitgeist? Well, I imagine many of your audience are people who are in the AI fraternity, and I, I just genuinely, honestly don't come from that fraternity. I come from, the, from a creative background, and I identify as that. And what's driving us to do what we're doing is to build tools that come from the creative sector, that are developed by creatives, for creatives, to enhance creativity. And that's the focus. And if we don't do it, our concern is that people who, who aren't motivated by our motivations will will displace jobs, which we don't want to see. That's why I think it's imperative to, to, do, to do this thinking from within the paradigms of, of, of creativity. Now, um, I also think that um, fear and ignorance work very closely together and what you don't know you fear. And for somebody who doesn't like maths, there's a lot to fear in AI, right? And the world of creativity is full of people who don't like maths. So, but yet they're happy to use Apple products, which are chock-a-block full of code, right? So it's just about how you position the product, how you design the product. And and, and I'm going to choose my words super carefully here. And specifically, it's about the level of automation you target. Because if your focus, as Adam said before, is on automation, you're doing something different, right? Our focus is not on automation. Our focus is on innovation. It's creating opportunities for more greater conversations. So what could come out of that is the ability for us to embrace a future that does have technology in it, but that is informed by a human-centric outlook that puts creativity, dreaming, passion, inspiration at the center of that. That's what I want to see. And so you prototyped this idea and you did the Romeo and Juliet remix of the Opera House. What did you learn out of that process? We learned that Shakespeare wrote a pretty good play, No, well, we did learn that, but it's actually a very simple play to model, and that's why we chose it. It was uh, given where the technology was at when we t- tackled it. It was it's it's just it's a really clean uh, symmetrical work, and that's why it was it lent itself well to the model. The main thing we learned out of that was that what appears really core to the identity of that story, which is this idea of the star-crossed lovers, that Baz Luhrmann idea of beautiful people die young. When you analyse the play and strip it right back, and in fact take those characters out and look at the Verona-Montague-Capulet conflicts and at the sort of social level, it's really clear that when Shakespeare, before he'd written a word, he'd already decided that the lovers died, right? Like he'd, he'd, he'd sort of, it's a tragedy. He wrote it as a tragedy. He knew they were going to die. So it's for Shakespeare in a sort of fundamental way, while it is about them, more fundamentally, it's about a divided society. And what he, what we believe he was trying to do was to conceive of the greatest possible sacrifice to make the cost of social fragmentation as high as possible. And the way he did that is by writing two beautiful lovers who should have been able to live a life together happily, but they couldn't because the society that they were in was, was at war. And so it reframes the whole story. He's deliberately sacrificing them on the altar of art so that the audience who aren't dead might maybe start integrating and having less conflict. And so that that was that reframing of the idea of a really a social observation at the heart of it was what we mainly learned. Joe, how is the data model that you're building with Amelia different from a neural net? We're coming from a quite different approach to that, which is much more. So there's this idea in AI about coherence, right? Which is to do with whether or not a piece of text reads, flows as English. And then there's a, another idea which is sort of more nuanced build on that, which is 
dramatic coherence. So there's you can get text coherence and it reads as text, but it's not dramatic. So what's the difference between a slab of text that you wrote in a high school essay and a slab of text that is a page out of a drama? What's the difference between those two things? They're both text. So clearly the answer is not in the text. It's in the linkages over time between concepts in that text. And that's where dramatic coherence comes in. So what we've got is a, a series, a, basically a hierarchical model that understands that, right? understands what are the relationships and how do they vary such that a, a story can be dramatic versus not dramatic. It's quite different to a neural net where you're going to basically get a whole bunch of Hollywood scripts or a whole bunch of novels from the 19th century or a whole bunch of books on computer code or whatever it is that you're training it with and confident that it's going to uh, uh, spit out something that is a bit like them but different within the parameters that you set as is a completely transparent model while we are often surprised by what comes out of it we know everything that's going into it we know all of the parameters and it's really operating completely transparently that means that all of these ideas about bias in the training material you put into a neural net that they, they disappear because you can you can you can study it you can look at it you can change it you can change it in real time i mean if you want to view it like a sort of a classic two by two kind of competitor assessment and you say that on one dimension is sort of real-time execution or delivery of, of a story versus the other one is real-time design of a story. You might say that a, a neural net will have real-time execution. In other words, it spits out in real time because you don't need a writer to write it, but it won't have real-time design. The design might have been a multi-million dollar experiment to train that neural net to actually, to get that cluster of, of, of somatic nodes. Amelia is, can, can be, from an interactive point of view, real-time execution, but it's also real-time design. So we can actually create engines later in our roadmap where you can you can on the fly change parameters with full confidence of how that's going to change the experience and then watch as that cascades out through a, for example, a game engine type experience. Fantastic. Really excited for you, Joe. It's inspiring and good luck. I hope your startup journey differs greatly from Hemingway's needs on his forehead experience, but I don't think there are any guarantees on that one. We look forward to hearing how you go and look forward to your growth as a fantastic innovation. Congratulations. Thanks, guys. Great chatting and some great questions there. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.